Hi everybody, you're listening to the Rope Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode zero before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. Our fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom and we're rope hunters. We've been practicing together for a couple of years and we're excited to share our passion for rope with you. And we live in Thailand, but today we have someone with us who does not live in Thailand. Who's with us today, Maya? Uh, today we're pleased to welcome Dr. Julie Fennell, who is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Gallaudet University and she has a PhD in the same area. And she studies and conducts sociological research on the kink subculture, and that includes contraception, gender, sex, BDSM, uh, and a number of other things. And she's been a practicing kinkster and a queer polyamorist, and she's known in the BDSM scene as Cookie Monster for the last nine years. So um, what's fascinating is that unlike a lot of researchers, she has a lived understanding of what it's like to be kinky so rather than seeing it as an exotic research topic which some of the stuff that I've read very much does and for our um, interests and purposes she's also a rope switch and she teaches rope bottoming and she's been tired after giving an academic lecture on BDSM which I've watched and was singing and performing a musical number which was also quite fascinating to watch. (laughs) <laughs> All right, that sounds pretty special. Welcome, Julian. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, to start us off, can you tell us what your uh, FetLife account is, if our listeners are in front of the computer and want to purview as they listen to your voice? <laughs> yes. Um, so my FetLife is IP Cookie Monster, and if by some chance your listeners don't have FetLife, I'm also on Twitter as IP Cookie Monster, and you can also check out my blog slutphd.com, which has a number of photos on it as well. Awesome. So to get started, um, tell us a bit how you got into rope in the first place. Well, so I initially became interested in rope because I knew a very hot girl who's now a very accomplished rigger. Her that life name is Celeste Lucia. And um, she was brand new to the scene at that point and like really, really new. And I was pretty new myself. And I thought she was super hot. And she, yeah, I, we, we joke around my house that the definition of a switch is that if somebody is hot enough that the answer is yes. <laughs> and that's like the, what the two switches, right? And I didn't have any particular desire to be tied up, but nor did I have any particular, like I didn't have any particularly negative feelings against it. It sounded intriguing. So I think she had just learned to, to tie very recently. Like maybe she'd gone to Shibari Khan like the weekend before or something. I don't know. And so she comes over to my house and I, she'd suspended one other person, and she was very enthusiastic. And I was like, well, I have a chin-up bar in my house, <laughs> and uh, so you can suspend me. I believe there's actually a picture of this on my FetLife profile. Okay, and awesome. So it's, it's very – it barely looks like a suspension. It's, it's hardly recognizable. So she gets me up into this thing. So I mean, I'm, I'm technically off the ground. I think she's tied my ankles to a door handle, I and mean, this was very inadvisable. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it was intriguing, and I was like, I, I don't know. I was like, I've got a dildo over there. She's like, I, I mean, okay, I never really thought about doing this with rope, but whatever. <laughs> so, so she, like, fucks me with a dildo while I'm like this, which was very awkward, but sort of interesting. <laughs> and uh, and she, we, we both look back on this with, with great amusement. 
Uh, sounds so pretty first... organic and spontaneous as a scene, the way you describe <laughs> it. It was. And, uh, and so, like, that was my first experience. Is that like, I can't honestly say that I, I particularly loved being suspended. Like, in that, I, I enjoyed playing with her. Was it your first rope altogether? Like, your first rope was a suspension, effectively? Yeah, yeah, that was my first rope suspension. That was her second time tying anyone. And uh, I, like, I don't mostly only tied other people i think at that point i was still primarily identifying as a top i've had I've had some very interesting experiences for myself in terms of my own identity and those things so then a couple of weeks later i guess i had a party at my house same chin up bar i think there's also a picture of this on my fellow profile a guy who was a bit more experienced suspended me and i was sort of like oh this is mildly entertaining but i still wasn't especially moved and uh so then i went to dark odyssey summer camp and there was a girl there that I wanted to fuck. And uh, so you can find her on FetLife, Truth and Rope. I know she'd be more than happy to, <laughs> to be mentioned in this memory. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I'm like sitting around a table and, and I like talking about fucking her. And I don't really know like how this comes about, but uh, I, met, I meet in the course of this conversation, Murphy Blue who was not particularly famous back then. Like, he was sort of mildly well-known. He was, like, 2010, like... And uh, and so he uh, offers to tie us up. I was like, well, we were getting ready to fuck each other. I was like, can you tie us up so we can fuck each other? And he's like, I mean, I've never done that before, but sure. <laughs> so I think you can see a theme here that in my initial notion of rope, like, this is all about sex, right? So... <laughs> So he, he, I think he had never tied two girls to fuck each other in the air before, uh, <laughs> but he did. Well, you know, it, it was, it was not fucking, it was not mutual, right? It was me fucking her, but you know, he, he tied us up and our hands were free, or at least my hands were free. I don't remember if hers were. He had to, like, this was, you know, one of the prerequisites, right? I was like, you have to at least give me my right hand. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it was basically like. He functionally had her in a sex swing, right? And then me, like, sort of swinging towards her. I mean, it wasn't particularly good sex, but it was a great stunt. And uh, and so I was I was more interested, but but I I was that was my I think I always think of that as my first quote unquote real suspension. Like I felt like that was the first time um, that I really like felt like I had been like really suspended basically. Um, and so I, uh, I, but, but my impression of it still was like, this is just sort of uncomfortable. I wasn't, I wasn't incredibly impressed with it. Like I was still mostly like, just, this is fun. This is a cool thing to do, but like, it didn't, it didn't make a strong impression. So then another friend of mine who was very interested in me, who eventually became a partner of mine and, uh, he was fast by how flexible I was and somehow or other he came he, he showed me a picture of a strapado which I'd never heard of I mean this is back in 2010 nobody's teaching classes on rope bottoming right this is all very seat of the pants so he shows me this picture of a strapado and I was like oh that looks like that would be fun so some time goes by I get tied up by a couple other people I'm still just sort of vaguely interested it's mostly just sort of a way like at that point rope is like mostly social but like the next time I see Murphy and have a real opportunity to tie with him I was like hey could you tie a strapado on me and he was like yeah I guess but he didn't actually I think at that point have a ton of experience even tying strapados and as it happened Celeste who was the girl who tied me up um 
was there at the same time and he ended up suspending both of us at the same time. I know there's a picture of this on his profile as well. And now I was, I was, I was getting more interested, right? Like the strapado was every bit as awesome as I thought it would be. It took me a long time to figure out more to be able to sort of articulate why I liked it so much. But over time I realized that I just really enjoy having my shoulders compressed. Um, and I, and I like, I like the challenge of it. Like, Basically, before that, rope mostly just to me seemed uncomfortable, but eventually I started looking for ways to enjoy the pain. Like, I wanted to find pains that I found enjoyable, basically. And once I found that, I got I got more and more hooked. Um, Did you have a masochistic bent before that? So where, where does it fit yeah. in terms of your... Yeah, so kink? I guess in terms of my overall kink life, um, I, I mean, I... Since I was five, I had lots of BDSM fantasies, like long before I knew what sex was. I remember being in literally in kindergarten and fantasizing about tying up other people's genitalia and having my own genitalia tied up. And I had no idea what this was and no context for it. And I, it's, it's really sort of my proof of like born this way kinky, right? Like I'm like, I don't have like some history of sexual abuse. I wasn't exposed to porn. This was all just stuff that was in my imagination. Um, but even when I was five, my fantasies was that I was, like, the queen of the school. <laughs> and I got to, like, tie up other people's genitalia, but they would tie up mine. Which is pretty much, like, I feel that was, that was the way I identified when I first got into the scene was basically as a masochistic dom. And I went through a long phase where I was, like, very hardcore switch. And now I feel like I've come back mostly out with the way that I got in, which is like more as a masochist at Dom. And I also, when I got into the scene, I was like only interested in BDSM for sex. And then I went through a long phase, but it wasn't too, now I'm kind of back to that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I went on a long journey to go right back where I started from. Um, okay. So, so in terms of, um, in terms of rope, like clearly you have a lot of rope experience if you've been doing it for a long time and, and in, on both sides of the coin. Um, but I've seen on your in your writings, uh, which I've spent some time with and I'll link to quite a few of them, I'm sure, in the interview show notes, you said that you don't feel that you fit into rope world very well. <laughs> so can you, what does that actually mean? So we're in Thailand. I'm a Brit, Fox is um, French. Um, there's a whole world out there that we're you know not not kind of in in the same way you might be so what does it mean rope world well to me the rope world the only rope world that i really know is the american rope world so i i mean i I guess i know the canadian rope world but the canadian rope world isn't functionally all that different from the american rope world uh it's very obsessed with japanese shibari it like really worships not just the style, but even the concept to the point where like there are definitely American riggers who will do things like basically like tie in kimonos. You know, these are like white guys tying in kimonos kind of thing. And I actually don't have the same kind of problems with that that I know some people do if they've actually like put the time into it or whatever. But it's mostly just that everyone in America, <laughs> not everyone, but the, the rope culture in general in America really venerates Japanese traditions, Japanese shibari, and I just do not have the same kind of respect for it. Like, I think it's cool, but I think it's a tool to draw on, not, like, something to worship in and of itself. And I also think that there's a lot of issues with Japanese culture in terms of gender and the construction of consent there that I don't personally want to emulate. And I think a lot of the problems that the rope subculture has had 
come directly from the fact that they got so much stuff from Japan and imported it here, lost a lot of its cultural context, but even in its cultural context, it's super problematic, as many Japanese women will tell you, as the third of Japanese people under the age of 30 who haven't had sex will tell you. It's got a lot, there's a lot of sexual and gender and consent problems in Japanese culture. And I barely ever hear people in, in American rope world talking about that. So we start with that. And then there's also the fact that related to it, there's this veneration and worship of a style of bondage, quote unquote, performance that I just find, frankly, soporific. Like it's, it's very slow and sort of sensuous and it's like all about it's basically to me just a scene that you're doing in front of other people and calling it a performance whereas I love what I call circus bondage and I didn't even and I, I independently topologist out in California came up with the same thing although he did it before I did and got way better at it um and and so like I, I've spent some time geeking out with him and a couple other people over like what is circus bondage and what does that really look like and it's uh, there's another guy out in Denver his name is Snob who does some of that type of stuff and I I think it's it's much more geared towards performance than those classic porn style shibari performances are and I I really prefer that style. Um, a lot and so riggers who I think of who do that are people like topologist um, Leon formerly known as monkey fetish now I'm monkey who I've tied with a lot and both of them I think are really good at doing that type of sort of flashy circus bondage type stuff snob as so, well so what does it what does it look like and maybe you can after the show email me a link and I'll put something up so people can see an example of Circus world. What is? What's the difference? You said flashy. It is flashy. It's very. It's very quick. It tends to really depend on acrobatic bottoms. Um, it's very, very carefully planned and timed out. I, I hope that somewhere there is a video of Topologist's performance with one of his partners that's just phenomenal. Um, to me, it was the epitome of of the notion. It's not usually that much about submission or dominance. It's way more about um, being able to make beautiful art with rope and do it relatively quickly, timed to music. Like, it, it's basically dance. It's more not like that, Cirque du Soleil. It's very much. I mean, in fact, I think some. I think there are some people at Cirque du Soleil who've been trying to do some of that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it looks like... It doesn't look that different from silks in a lot of ways, except, you know, it's rope. And uh, it's it's gorgeous when it's done well, but there aren't that many people who have done it. I've... Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this rope podcast and sharing it with you. Sadly, hosting a podcast isn't free. Far from it, actually. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. You find ways to buy rope stuff so that we get a cut from your purchases and also ways to donate to us directly. And if you can't afford to do that, that's okay too. Just enjoy the podcast. Now back to our normal programming. So some people would say that that's not a very connective type scene and that the, the yeah. scenes, the sensual scenes that you describe, which are essentially a scene being performed, are more connective. And I've heard you or, or seen you write against that. 
Um, yeah. So how how are they, what is essentially a performance? How is that a connective scene? I think any performance can be intensely connective as long as you and your partner are enjoying what you're doing. It doesn't doesn't have to be slow. It doesn't have to be about dominance and submission. It just has to be about you and the person that you're working with enjoying. So you can find video um, of a performance that I did at Narex with a girl who I barely knew at the time, Alt Bronte, who's a fantastic rigger now. Um, and, uh, and so she and I had met like earlier that day and then someone was like, Hey, will you like do this performance? And we're like, yeah, sure. Why not? We like to perform. And it was just a phenomenal experience for both of us. Like it was a completely different type of tying than what she had ever done before. But, but I had been working on it as a concept for a long time. She and I had barely ever done it before. It was very fast. It was very spontaneous. It had none of that like slow stuff. And, you know, when we were done, everyone in the room was like, oh my God, that's one of the hottest things I've ever seen. Like people were literally like fanning themselves from how sexy it was. And it didn't follow any of the types of conventions that one associates with like a traditional shibari performance. And it was certainly one of the most connective rope experiences of my entire life, but it didn't follow anything about what one expects. And in fact, people watching it, they, they commented, they're like, we couldn't actually tell watching that who was in charge. <laughs> like <laughs> it didn't, we're like, we were, we, we were like, I was the only one getting tied up and she was the only one doing the tying, but they were like, we don't, we didn't actually know who was in charge of that scene. <laughs> and, and that was part of the thrill for both of us. And in fact, we were deliberately flouting some of the conventions. So I was clothed and she was naked and normally people are tying, they're the ones clothed and the bottom's naked. It was, it was a lot of fun to, to flout those types of conventions and those are the kinds of things that I associate with Rope World and some of its weaknesses is having established so many of these conventions. So another one I really dislike is that there's an expectation that men tie and women get tied, right? And, like, men are wearing clothes and the women are naked. And, like, I really love to see boys tied up. And I like to see them struggling. And I like, like, big guys, not, like, you know, just – I mean, I like all kinds of people tied up. But I really like to watch, like – you know, six foot muscly guys like struggling in rope. I think it's super hot. And that's just not anything that's part of conventional rope culture. So there's a, and... there's a number of stereotypes in rope culture that uh, you've touched on. As yeah. a researcher, have you learned more about what you would say qualifies rope subculture in BDSM and what its characteristics are? Yeah, yeah, I have. So, I mean, I have statistics, which I would assume I'm the only person who does. I didn't actually set out to intentionally research the rope subculture, and so um, a lot of my research is kind of coincidental. But I did a large-scale survey of the BDSM subculture back in 2017, and one of the questions that I asked people was to uh, describe their most recent scene, self-defined, preferably not performance or teaching or education unless they felt like that was a scene. Um, and, uh, and so I get people's descriptions and then anyone who mentioned a suspension is basically what I coded as being in my incredibly primitive way in rope subculture. So this was the last new person that you played with by your own definition. 
And I think there's probably a lot of people who are in the rope subculture who don't show up in those numbers, but I'm pretty sure that most of the people who are doing suspensions are to some degree within the rope subculture. Mm-hmm. So I gathered some statistics on that. And uh, first of all, it's literally almost entirely men tying women. I think there's two exceptions. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's almost, it's almost entirely uh, men tying women. Um, Where's the sample from, Julie? Like, how did you get the sample in the first place? Just to... uh, so the sample is anybody selected. Yeah, basically. So I posted the links on FetLife and Twitter, and I got I got a very large sample. Ultimately, it's like mm. sixteen hundred people. But in terms of like the number of scenes that I have that involve suspension, it's uh, I'm trying to do the math. It's sixty three. Mm-hmm. So, so of of all of those people who told me a story about they did a scene recently, 63 of them had done one involving suspension. Um, and yeah, so almost all of those are, are men tying. And then uh, other things that I wanted to find out from that were about sex. So I had I had, I had uh, complained a lot that I felt like the rope subculture really divorced rope from sexuality, and that this was one of the things that drove me crazy about it. So I was curious to see whether or not statistics, and the answer came out to a very decided sort of. <laughs> so uh, if your last scene involves suspension, you were half as likely. Um, to have had sex, like by by a very loose definition of sex, um, any is it, type of. Is it because contact. it's hard to have sex in suspension? I mean, it could be, <laughs> right? But th- it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that because they could have kept. They they I'm, they could have had sex when they got down, right? Yeah. Like they, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not excluding that possibility from this encounter because this is coded for the entire encounter, like whatever they mm-hmm. define. We don't have a problem us. having sex in suspension. We, no, I don't. We don't well, see it as well a... maybe you don't. You're not the one having to contort yourself. Well, it depends what you count as sex, <laughs> yes, which my true. definition is broader than yours. So yeah, well, and I was using a very, very broad definition here, um, but within that. 21% of the people in a suspension scene had sex and 46% of the people who didn't have a suspension had sex. So there's a lot more people um, having sex. That said, I, people who are in the rip subculture by these definitions uh, played a lot more. So like by any reckoning, they had more, uh, way more BDSM partners in the last six months than the people who didn't. So like the median for the people who who had suspension is is six, and for people who didn't was four, which is really big when you're talking about a median actually. Hmm. Um, at the 90th percentile mark, the difference isn't as extreme. So it's 14 for people who aren't in ropes of culture and 15 for people who are. Um, but given all that, the people in the rope subculture don't have that many fewer sex partners in the last six months than the people who are not in the rope subculture. So it's a median of two for both. And then the 90th percentile for people not in the rope subculture is six. And for the people in is five, which is not a huge difference when, especially when you're talking about such a small sample size of people in the rope subculture. So basically the story seems to be that they're less likely to have sex with the people that they're playing with 
they play with so many more people that in the end, the number of sex partners comes out to be kind of close. Um, which I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, it, so, yeah. if, if you're picking up if you're picking up rope in order to get laid, you might not be as successful as you hope, but at least you're gonna play with a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people do get laid a lot from rope, and I think that is sort of the moral of the story in the end, right? Like, is that you you probably will get laid a fair bit from rope, but mostly you're just going to end up having a lot of play partners. <laughs> like, it's much better for getting you play partners than for getting you laid, but um, I, I didn't look at the extreme ends of that, and there's no way for me to do that with my survey, because I'm pretty sure... My hypothesis would be that it's the extreme ends of that distribution. It's the very experienced people who get to really use rope to get laid, uh, but I don't have an easy way to measure that with the data that I have. And also there aren't even enough of those people, I think, that I'd be able to really get reliable statistics. Were, were there any other uh, comparable subcultures in BDSM that were similar in terms of the, the makeup? Or is rope unusual in that? Like, did impact? Because rope is something that you can do very successfully with sex and very successfully without sex. But then I would imagine that impact is, is similar. So was it similar for any of the other subcultures? I mean, so at least in America, there isn't an impact subculture. Like, the only other... there, there In America, at least, there's functionally only two... I say this cautiously two other well-defined sub-subcultures within the BDSM community. So there's a, a spanking community, which actually doesn't really exist under... It sort of, like, gently overlaps with the larger BDSM subculture, but not really. Um, it's, it's more like there are some spanking folks who also hang out in the BDSM community, but I, 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 I hesitate to even call them being under that. And the But the one that's most... Uh, the most well-defined in the U.S. is the femdom subculture. Um, so I actually did analyze them as well, and they're also way less likely to have sex. <laughs> um, but they're way less likely to have sex on every measure. Um, that, that one is very dramatic. If the subs and the dons don't want to have sex, it's very weird and interesting. Um, it was fun to have real data on it. So now when I teach my class on femdom, I get to be like, no, really, I'm not making this up because people would be like, oh, you're just, oh, you just haven't met the right people. And I have the numbers. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> I guess that speaks to one of my other sort of objections to the rope subculture was I felt like it was weirdly desexualized. And then my last was that I felt like it was always just very snobby and rampant for abuse. <laughs> and, um, and so, like, in, uh, my, my friends and I joke the collective noun for, for a group of riggers is a jury of riggers. The rope bottoms always do the same thing, especially for experienced ones. And it's, it's, a very, it's a very intimidating and judgy subculture to the point where I know a lot of people, including my husband, who are like, just like, I won't tie in public because I don't want to deal with all these people judging me. Mm. I think it's really destructive. Is that, um, so again, not American here, but my impression of the American scene is it, that sex is a bit of a weird thing in the scene anyway. Like it's not, uh, what would I say, integrated. Uh, is that right or is that a misconception? The answer is it's very complicated. So I mean, this, is, <laughs> no, this, is, this is a huge part of what I study. Like specifically, I've got a whole paper that, I'm, that I've, well, I haven't quite written the paper, but I've done a couple presentations about it. It depends a lot on where you are. 
so if you're in the part of the country where I am, around the D.C. area, um, it's very, very sex-friendly, relatively speaking. If you go to other parts of the country, not so, not so much. I have, I have writings about this on FetLife where I even identified, like, the most clearly sex-positive uh, scenes. I mean, the D.C. scene is by far and away, by any measure, the most sex-positive scene uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, and that said, in my analyses, just as I had expected, um, looking again at that variable about whether or not you had sex the last time you played with somebody – if you met them in a remotely BDSM context, the odds of you having had sex with them just plummet. And it's just hysterical, like how much less, like including BDSM places where you're allowed to have sex with them, there's way less likely than if you met them online or in a vanilla context. Mm. Um, and even at like kink adjacent events, which I mean, includes swinger events. So that's less surprising, but, um, yeah, it's 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 very dramatic, and in fact, uh, in my in my numbers, there's almost no difference between your odds of having sex. Like there is no difference in your odds of having sex if you met at a BDSM event where you're allowed to have sex or one where you're not. Like, um, <laughs> and so like the community prides itself on being very sex positive, but uh, for a lot of historical reasons, the BDSM community in America has gone out of its way to sort of differentiate itself from uh, being as much about sex. And so it's, it's a very awkward relationship with sexuality. And is, I it, uh, is it, you think, uh, it. <laughs> a way for them to separate from the swingers, which you mentioned just before? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And I think also, um, yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think it's a huge part of it. But another part of it is that a lot of BDSM clubs have really just been in this long-term struggle for respectability. Mm. And so in their desperate bid to be respectable, they ban sex. Okay. And if you talk to a lot of the owners, they'll tell you, oh, I had to, like, it's the law, and it's it's just silly. Because in one of the clubs in New York, literally, like, it's a, it's a gay men's, like, swinger-type club on alternating nights. But it's a BDSM club that forbids sex on the yeah. other night. And some of it is... Uh, in New York, especially in a couple other places where the BDSM scenes are closely tied to professional dominatrixes, um, the dominatrices aren't allowed to have sex with their clients. And so like, it kind of trickles down, I think, a little bit into the BDSM scenes in, in those areas as well. Um, but I think, I think mostly it's just this desperate bid for, for respectability. Okay. Um, do you think one hypothesis, if we come back a bit more on rope, is that rope gets use a, a whole range of very intense sensations, and some people feel that is sufficient as a payoff, and don't see, like, can be satisfied doing just rope without needing quotation marks sex with it. Um, I think it's more complicated than that. So I definitely feel like there is a a complicated gender plus role thing that goes into that such that I talk to a lot of rope, female rope bottoms who aren't looking for sex in the rope and I look, talk to a lot of male rope tops who are <laughs> and, and the failure to negotiate across that chasm is I think a huge part of why the rope community has so many consent problems I, I, I don't have statistics on that one as good because um, there just aren't enough people for me to analyze. I can say in my sample that both 
female submissives and male dominants are much more likely to prefer sex with their play than female dominants and male submissives. But I, I still, there's still a gap there. So the, the female submissives want sex less than the male dominants do. Um, it's not a huge gap, but it is still a gap. And, and I think that that is a lot of what happens is that, um, female submissives especially go into a lot of rope play, not looking for a sexual experience and male rope tops are looking for a sexual experience. And so, and, and no one's been taught to negotiate well and be honest about that. And it gets, it gets really messy. Um, I think the rope community would like for you to believe that rope is such an amazing sensation that it's, it's all you need. Um, and I, I definitely have had lots of rope experiences where that, that was true for myself. Um, I'm not, I'm not knocking it as a thing. Um, that said, I think that to a lot of people, especially a lot of people who like rope, who stay outside of the rope subculture that I talk to, uh, they find the desexualization of rope within the rope subculture to be very alienating. So like, I don't want to go to those rope events because um, for me, rope is about sex and that just doesn't seem to happen there as much. And it's true. Like I can tell you from having walked through the halls at various kink events, like I sort of measure the success of a kink event, walking through a hotel, like listening for people, people's sex noises. <laughs> And uh, in rope events, you don't you don't tend to hear hear a lot of the screaming and wailing. Okay, so clearly you're very out uh, about being a kinky person, about being very sex positive. How does that mix with being an academic for you? Um, I have tenure, and uh, I was pretty strategic about the way that I I did things. I went to go work at a liberal arts college. I I went to work at a department where it was clear that. My department chair was be very supportive of me, which she was, until I had tenure, and then I was strategic to not publish any articles that included the word BDSM in them until I had tenure. And tenure um, means you can't be fired, right? Again, not American. For all purposes, yeah. I mean, it, it's not it's not a 100% done deal, but it 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 makes it very hard to be fired for any for anything other than egregious offenses, and. Um, yeah, my, my university seems to be very cheerful about it. Well, they, initially it was terrible, so the ethics board treated me like complete dirt when I first uh, applied to research it, and uh, they they said some very mean things to me. Um, so it culminated in the uh, chair of the ethics board saying that she thought that it was unethical to watch people being hurt and not trying to stop it. And wow. I said... But what if they're in the middle of having an orgasm? <laughs> and uh, they shut up after that. So there's not much. To, I mean, there's my experience is there's not much research out there, right? So they haven't. Presumably, your ethics board didn't have a lot to go on. There were the... at the time when I was applying to do my research, there had been two other sort of big sociological studies. Uh, two people have written books. Um, now there's a third, although this woman's in Europe. Oh, man, I'm not sure. This person's trans. Um, another person out in Europe uh, has has studied the dyke plus trans BDSM scene there. Uh, so no, there were there were a couple of, of other uh, studies for them to be to be coming from as justification. Uh, neither of the other two people 
who had done the research at that time were out. Okay, well, I'll, um, I'll get the other um, uh, references from you as well so that we can put those in for people who are particularly interested in the research side of things. Um, and where else? So, so just um, remind us again where people can find you and your, uh, your links. Yeah, so on FetLife, I'm IP Cookie Monster. I'm also IP Cookie Monster on Twitter, and then I have a blog, slutphd.com. And if the gods and a university press smile upon me, hopefully in the next year or so, I will have a book out called Please Scream Quietly <laughs> that will be about the history of the scene. Uh, well, not the history, but sort of the pre- it'll be like the recent present of the scene, and uh, I'll put information about that on my blog if if that happens. Well, thank you, Julia. It was really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to go ahead and look at those links and maybe even read a couple of the books and so on and uh, get a bit deeper in that subject. So it was really fun talking to you, and yes. dear listeners, that is all from us today at the Rope Podcast. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. So iTunes or Stitcher or so on. And come friend us on our FetLife page, which is Rope Podcast No Space. You can also find us easily at ropepodcast.com. We love questions from listeners, so drop us a message on FET and we'll try to answer you in an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. Bye.